Okay, we are picking up in James chapter 4. This is where we've left off. James chapter 4. James chapter 4, reading from verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. This is all we're going to cover today. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. So let's look back up at verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? So this is a verse calling us to introspection. It's a question that calls us to look at ourselves. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Look at yourself. This is what he's saying. And then he says, is, it not, is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? And this is a question that's demanding an affirmative answer. This is the way the scriptures are being set up. A question that calls us to introspection, and then another question that's calling us to an affirmative answer. That the source of conflicts often can be brought back to our, our pleasures that are waging war among us. It says, you lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. So when there is a lust, the lust, mean, uh, lust means that an unfulfilled gain, something that is solely for me, I want this, I want this. And it, it's something that... that uh, uh, that we're seeking in this way. It doesn't have to be sexual. It certainly can be sexual. If you're interested in, in, in learning more about lust with respect to dealing with this in the sexual realm, I have a six-part series on my website. It's at jmtour.com. If you go under the, um, uh, the audio section, uh, the, the, the personal section, and then audios, you'll find a six-part series on scriptural sexual ethics, which I went over actually in this class about three or four years ago. And so it is there. And it's the six-part series. And it's interesting about that series. The way it works is you listen to part one. Then after that, you go to part two. And after that, part three. And you, it's sequential in that way. It was designed to do that. And I know that, that we're nonlinear learners now, and we just click everywhere we want. And somehow we piece it together. But this was made to go in sequence. <clears throat> it says, you lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. So what he's talking about here is desiring something so intensely. And then he says, you are envious and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So look what he's saying. He says, there's something here. There's a lack of contentment that causes conflict and quarrels. It is this lack of contentment. If you and I would learn to be content with what we have, life becomes so much better. Let me just give you a few examples, and then we're going to look at some scriptures. I work in a department with other people, with other professors, and we're all given certain things, and, and, and to start out when you, in your career, you're given a certain amount of things, you say, go. 
And so they give you a credit card and they say, this is how much you have in your account. Now raise some grant money, quit your lab, do what you need to do, and propel your career. So we all start with exactly the same thing. But you can meet half a dozen professors from the same department that were given essentially the same thing on day one. You will find one among that half dozen that's really happy, and you'll find five that are like, you know, cursing and spitting and complaining all the time. And you're like, what's going on? And the one says, hey, it's good here. This is a great place. And the other five are like, oh, stinking place. They never give me anything. It's never good enough. The salaries are not good enough. The students aren't good enough. And you're like, what's going on? Same students, same people. What is it about people where one is content and one is not? The scriptures tell us as believers to walk in contentment. I will tell you personally, I love my work. There is no other job that I would rather have. You know, think about it. Do I want to be a physician and spend my life looking up and down every hole in a person's body? Do I want to do that? No, that's not what I want to do. I'm not against physicians. You can do what you like. That's fine. But for me, I really like doing what I'm doing. I don't want to be a cop and have people you know, cursing me out and shooting at me all day. I don't want that. I really love what I do. It's learning how to be content. The scripture calls us to this. Let's look at a few scriptures. Philippians. Philippians chapter 4. And Philippians, you can think of General Electric Power Company. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So find any one of those books and, and, and now, now you, can, you can locate where this thing might be. So Philippians chapter 4, reading from verse 11. Not that I speak from want, Philippians 4.11, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So, you know, we've heard this verse a lot before. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But there's some verses that precede that. It says, not that I speak from want. Paul says, look, I'm I'm not in want of anything. I'm not speaking from want because I've learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am. I know how to get along with humble means. So, in other words, in times in life... When it's just humble means. I know how to get along with that. And I'm happy. He says, I also know how to live in prosperity. In prosperity, I'm happy. And you think, oh, well, anybody's happy in prosperity. That's not the case at all. You look at, 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 at young athletes who make it big time in football or basketball. And they make these huge salaries. And over the first three years of their careers, they've made a, you know, tens of millions of dollars. And look at them. Many of them are not happy. They're just blowing money all over. Learning how to be content in humble means and also in prosperity is not something that just you know how to do. Nobody knows how to handle that. This comes from God. It comes from Jesus Christ. He teaches us this. He says, I've, I, he says that, In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret 
of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. So in other words, when I'm in times, he says, where I'm hungry and even in need, I'm content. Because of the secret that Jesus Christ has given me. In times of abundance, I'm content. I'm really content in this. And you learn, you can learn in Jesus Christ to do this. This is a good thing to learn how to do. If you always want this and that and this and that, if I could just have this, then I'd be set. I guarantee you, you get that thing and you won't be really set. You won't be. Let me give it to you more vividly. Some men that are a man who's married to a particular woman, and this happens often. He's been married, say, ten years, and he meets somebody else, and he thinks, wow, if I just had that woman for my wife, then I'd really be happy. Because she understands me, and, you know, she's much kinder, and she listens to me, and she thinks I'm a good guy. My wife doesn't think I'm a good guy. Well, because she's known you for ten years. Well, anyway, so he divorces this woman to go with that woman, or first has an affair with the other woman and then divorces his wife. And then what he often quickly learns is that this woman that he thought was going to you know, make everything in his life just perfect, it's really not perfect. And that's misery indeed. To get something that you've always lusted after, and then you get it and you see there's no fulfillment in this. Let's bring it back to a smaller way, because I don't think many of you have been married and divorced and and through this yet. It happens. 50% of the people in the church, it happens to. 50% of you, it will happen to, statistically. Unless you walk with Jesus and really apply these things and cry out to Him. Nevertheless, have you ever really wanted something and even the very same day or the day after you buy it, you're like, I didn't really need this. Have you, have you ever felt that way? Has this ever happened to anyone? It has. Yeah, this buyer's remorse. I didn't really need this. You get this. <clears throat> Did that ever happen to you? You bought a blouse or something. I just got to have that blouse. You buy the blouse and you're like, I didn't need that. I mean, this one that I have is almost just like it. You've done that, have you? Shoes? Has it ever happened with shoes? <laughs> oh, you keep it in the closet for a month and you return it. I got it. <clears throat> okay. Learning how to be content. And you say, well, what, at what level, you know, what is the base for our contentment? Turn to 1 Timothy First Timothy. So First Timothy is shortly before the book of Hebrews. So if you hit the book of Hebrews, you've gone too far. First Timothy chapter six. Let's start reading at verse six. First Timothy six, verse six. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we can take nothing out of it either. If we have food and covering with, this, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. 
For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So it it doesn't say that money, it says that the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. But if you want to know the base at which God says we shall be content, he says in verse 8, if we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. As far as I can tell, everyone here has covering. As far as I can tell. We have food right in the back there. Eat all you like this morning. According to the Scriptures, you have everything you need to be content. The Scriptures don't even guarantee us a home. They don't. Jesus even said, The birds of the air have nests, the fox of the fields have holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. Even Jesus never had a home of His own. There is no guarantee for the believer that they will even have a home. So if you have a place to lay your head, where you have a key to a door that lets you in that place, you have more than the Scriptures even guarantee us. As believers, He calls us to contentment with covering, with clothing, and with food. We are to be content. That is the base level of our contentment. With that, we shall be content. You see that this love of money, this pursuit of money, and, I, and I've met young Christian people who tell me, you know, what do you want to do in your career? And I had this, this Christian guy say to me, well, you know, what I want to do is I want to make a lot of money fast so that I can then do the things that I enjoy doing and have that as a means to do the things that I really want. And I looked at him and I said, this is odd. There's nothing scriptural in what you have just said. This is very much the world. And you are setting yourself up to have many griefs, the Scriptures say. To have many griefs. That I want to do this and get this as a means to the end. So what are you going to do? Just sit around and just chill the rest of your life and sit around out in the back and drink iced tea? What are you going to do? No, it's a life of service to God. That we are called to be content with what we have. Because if we're not, it's constantly coveting. You know what the Tenth Commandment is? Anybody know the Tenth Commandment of the Ten Commandments? It says, you shall not covet. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not covet your neighbor's male servant, or his female servant, or his, or his uh, uh, ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Could God have been more explicit? So remember, nine of the Ten Commandments are embodied in New Testament commandments as well, and certainly the commandment against coveting is right there in in the New Testament as well. And and, uh, in fact, it goes further. It says that in Colossians 3.5, it says to covet or to be greedy is equivalent with idolatry. You think, oh, I'm not an idolater. I don't bow before an idol. But in Colossians 3.5, it says to be covetous is equivalent with idolatry. Being covetous, it says, is idolatry. So get this picture in your mind of bowing before an idol. It says to be covetous is equivalent with idolatry. You see what the New Testament does, what Jesus does? He raises the bar on the believer. 
the New Testament raises the bar on the believer. And he does this in Matthew chapter 5. It says, if you hate, if you, it says, you shall not murder. The Bible says, if you hate your brother, you've committed murder. And this is what it's talking about in James. It says, you, you want and you desire these things, and you commit murder. It doesn't mean physical murder. It says that even if you hate your brother, you have committed murder. How's that for raising the bar upon the believer? Think about that. That means that if you have a Christian brother or sister and you hate them, the Bible says you are guilty of murder. Where does it say that? Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 verse 21. says, You have heard the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. Matthew 5.21 Whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever is angry with his brother and says to him, you good for nothing shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. So when you're with your Christian roommate and you get really angry with them, be careful what you say. Right? The Bible says if we hate our brother, we've committed murder. We're guilty before the court as if we've committed murder. Jesus raises the bar on us. He does the same thing with adultery. In, in, in the same chapter, verse five, chapter 5, verse 27 of Matthew. Matthew 5, 27. You've heard it said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in, her, in his heart. You see, Jesus raises the bar. I was sharing with a, with a Jewish man, because I, we were in Israel, not this summer, last summer, and, and he was taking me to a, a research institution, and so we were driving together in the car, and, and I was born and raised a Jew, and then I came... At the age of 18, I came to understand that Jesus Christ is the Savior of my soul. And so we were talking, and he says, you know, what I love about Judaism is it gives me structure about which to operate. I said, oh, in Jesus, I have a structure about which to operate, and my structure is even firmer. And I gave him these examples. If I hate my brother, I've committed murder. I said... Jesus said, if you look upon a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery with her already in your heart. You know what he said to me? He says, oh, that's impossible to obey. That's too hard. In the flesh, it absolutely is. For young men that struggle with lust, I'm telling you, go to that passage on scriptural sexual ethics that I taught. That, 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 uh, um, that teaching on scriptural sexual ethics. We take lust directly on and begin to deal with it and show how to deal with that. So it's not like somebody can say to you, don't lust. Oh, okay, I won't lust. (laughs) There is a way to deal with these sort of things. There's a way to deal with it. And young man, if you struggle with this, you are not alone. Young lady, if you struggle with this, you are not alone. I have been there. And I'm glad to teach you how to deal with this. 
So you see, Jesus raises this bar, and in raising this bar in Colossians 3.5, it says, covetousness is equivalent with idolatry. That's a bar that's been raised. It's that we're not to be covetous, and we're to be content in what we have. I'll tell you, I love my work. And people say, you know, we, I, we have lived as a family. You know, we started in New York, then we lived in Indiana, then Wisconsin, California, South Carolina, and then Texas. It's a family. People say, well, you know, where do you like best? I don't know how to answer that. I've liked every place I've ever lived. I really have. I've liked every place I've ever lived. I've had a church community. I've had friends. Every place we've ever lived, we've liked it. It's not like, oh, that stinking city, I hate that. No, I liked every city I lived in. And they were all different. Some were big cities, like Houston. Some were much smaller towns, like West Lafayette, Indiana, where Purdue University is. You know, I love every town I've ever lived in. It is a state of being content. You know, I just, just had a big birthday party, and I got, I got two gifts, things that I really, really like. And both of them, both of them, I could easily afford. I could go out and get either of them myself without any problem. It wouldn't, wouldn't put any dent in my budget at all to have gotten them. One of them was a GPS. I got a GPS. Finally, I got a GPS. He said, well, why didn't you go out and get it? Well, I didn't want it bad enough. I don't like spending money on myself. You know, you just get to the... There's nothing that I, that I want that I can't buy. Really, there's nothing that I want that I can't buy. You know, one of my kids will say, oh, what about such and such a car? I say, well, if I really wanted that car, I could buy it. I'd go out today and buy that car. But I don't want that car. I have no desire. I drive a 2001 Ford minivan, which is the most uncool car you can drive. <laughs> I realize that. And I get that car because my wife used it for, for like six years. And it turned into a, a, a trash truck. You know, the dump truck. The family dump truck that the kids grew up in. And, you know, popsicle sticks and Cheerios and everything. And then when she's done with it, we get her a car and I get her car. And so then I take it and I spend a few hours cleaning it up and getting scrubbed down. And, 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 and I'm happy. I'm really happy for years. I'm happy with this thing. I've learned to be content with that. And if I've got to pick up students, I can fit a lot of them in this car. So it's fun for me. It really fits me well. It's like, well, you, you can't accelerate that fast. I never needed to accelerate that fast. <laughs> never really did. And it goes much faster on the highway than I care to go. You know, it, it, it can go much faster. And so what I got, I, and the other thing I got, which was really so good, is a Kindle. You know, one of these e-books. So I can download all my books. And can you imagine all these Bible versions I can download? And I'm gonna be, I can type in notes. And so I was just learning how to use this thing last night. Really excited about it. But I was content without it. But I'm happy with it. God wants us to get to a point of contentment. Learning to be content. God has brought us into this. And I wasn't always like this. I remember when we were getting our first house, we were... We, you know, I just finished graduate school and then two years of postdoc and, and I was just starting a job and I was an assistant professor. I was 28 years old and I really wanted this house. And so we were, you know, we put this offer on this house and 
Then the whole thing fell through because, you know, something was wrong with the foundation and we ended up having to move into an apartment and I was bitter and upset. I said, here I am. And I've been in school all these years and I can't even have a house. And, you know, God just really had to catch me. Well, I can be content. And so we lived in an apartment for a year. Ten months. We lived in an apartment as we searched for another home. Learning how to be content. Learning how to be content. And then what happened is, after ten years... We sold our home. We were going to move into another home. And that home, some problem was found with it before it closed. And so we could back out of it, but our home was sold. And guess what we did? We moved right back into the same apartment that we had lived in ten years earlier. So here I was, a full professor with a chaired professor, and I moved into the assistant professor apartment place. And I was happy. I was okay with that. And you know what God did? God ended up, it was so great that that home had fallen through, that second home, because then I would have had to have sold that, because then we got this offer from Rice, and it made the move very easy, because we were in an apartment anyway. God knows what He's doing. But learning how to be content makes your life so much easier. And then let's turn back to, to James. So James says in, in chapter 4, verse 3, he says, You ask and you do not receive, because you... You, I'm sorry, in the end of, of verse 2 of, of chapter 4, James chapter 4, verse 2, right at the end, it says, You do not have because you do not ask. That is the primary reason why Christians do not get answers to prayer. It's because they do not ask. The primary reason why we don't get answers to prayer is because we don't ask. You ask and you'll get answers to prayer. Let me just mention, has that, has that uh, sign-up sheet been circulating? Has everybody signed that? No, it has to get up here. Once, once you're done... Uh, so I know you? Okay. I know you, Michael, but still sign up. Okay. Um, primary reason why we don't receive is because we don't ask. And God never answers my prayers. Well, do you pray? Uh, well, he knows what I want. Well, the Bible says you don't receive because you don't ask. Primary reason. Because you didn't ask. And then he says, he says in verse 3, you ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. You ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. You know, there's prescribed ways of asking. Prescribed ways of asking. You know, in, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, says, Ask and it will be given. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be opened. Okay? But now let's look at what else he teaches us. In John chapter 14, in John chapter 14, he says something a bit more specific. John chapter 14, verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. So does in my name mean, I say, in Jesus' name? Is that asking in His name? If I take my 14-year-old son, if my 14-year-old son goes to his older sister and says, um, uh, Give me that book. She says to him, no. If he says, 
Dad said to give me that book. Then he's asking in my name, right? But what if I never said to him, go get that book from your sister? What's he doing? He's saying the words of my name, but there's none of me behind that. Do you see what I mean? Isn't that wrong of him to do? If he's to go and to say, sister, Dad says to me, give that. That's like our appealing to God. In Jesus' name. Jesus says that you really ought to give me this. Well, Jesus, did Jesus really say that? You see, in His name, has to appreciate how holy and grace-filled He is. Before we start asking things in His name, Father, give me that girl as my girlfriend in Jesus' name. Well, did Jesus really direct you to say that prayer? Do you see what I mean? In saying in His name doesn't mean in His name. Any more than my son saying, Dad said, give it to me, without my saying, give it. In, in, in 1 John chapter 5, there's another directive for us in how we should pray. 1 John chapter 5. So this is after James, shortly before Jude and, and Revelation. 1 John chapter 5 verse 14 says... This is the confidence we have, 1 John 5.14, this is the confidence which we have before Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from Him. So you see, because we don't want to wrestle out things with God and discern His will, we flippantly ask, And we don't receive because James says, you ask with wrong motives. And this is the source of quarrels and fights among you because you want and you don't get. And you end up fighting with men because you won't wrestle it out with God. We are to ask according to His will. How do we know His will? We have to spend time with Him and understand His will. Now we certainly know it is His will that His grace falls upon missionaries. So it's not like, Lord, should I, should I pray for this missionary? Because I don't know, maybe you don't want me to pray for that missionary. No, we know what His will is in certain situations. But when it comes to the things that our heart is really desiring, you know, you, you know C.S. Lewis expands on this t- thing. But to have a God who only answers our prayers, whatever we ask, is not a God but a genie and is an unmerciful and hard God. Can you imagine if everything we asked for, we got? You know what I would ask for? I would ask that I was six foot five, two hundred and fifty pounds, and the fastest person in the NFL. And this is the type of thing I'd ask for. You know, I'd, I'd ask that oh, Lord make me really, really handsome. So when I walked in a room, people would go, "Wow, good looking guy." But you know how hard it is on people who are really good looking to keep their focus in on God because people are catering to their looks all the time? God has made us exactly how we ought to be. Imagine what it would be like. We would become insidious in our requests. It's like the guy who had the, the antique shop. And there were two antique shops in town. And this one guy, he was so upset that there was this other antique shop. And for years, he's always upset. He hated the guy who owned the other antique shop. The other guy in the antique shop was fine. There was enough business for both of them. But anyway, so this guy who hates, hates his competitor. It was one day, 
cleaning off some antiques and he was scrubbing some, some lamp or something and a genie came out. Genie came out and said to him, I'm going to grant you one wish, anything you want. But remember, whatever you ask for, I'm going to give double to your competitor down the road. And he thought for a moment and he said, I wish that I were blind in one eye. This is how we would become. God grants us. He says the primary reason you don't get is because you don't ask. You want to start asking? You, you can say, Lord, I pray that I do well on this exam. I pray that I do well. There's nothing wrong with that prayer. But if you don't study, is it right for God to just come and have you do well? Isn't it different to pray, Lord, as I study? Lord, I pray that you would come and fill me with a deeper understanding as I study. Keep my mind focused and show me and reveal things to me as I'm studying. You see the oneness and the communion there in a relationship rather than gimme, gimme, gimme? And this is what he says. He says, when you, when you know God, you ask according to His will. And then to know Jesus and to ask according to His name is so much different. He says, you do not receive because you do not ask. And secondly, when you do ask, you ask with selfish motives. To know Him causes us to put our own self in right perspective. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for Your Word, for the truth of Your Word, for what You're calling us to. Father, I pray for these young people that You would so work in their lives to keep them free from covetousness. Father, that they would learn to be content in all situations. And as their semester begins and they have all this, this work to do, Father, I pray that they would not forget their relationship with You. Lord, I ask You to be working in their lives. Father, if there's young men or young women here that have struggled with lust, Father, I pray that You give them freedom from this as they learn how to deal with it according to the Scriptures. Father, I pray that they would learn how to deal with covetousness, with envy that would be the source of quarrels among them. Father, I pray for your grace in that. And Lord, I pray that they would learn to pray, to ask according to your will, to hear from you what you would have in a certain situation. And then to learn to pray in the name of Jesus, according to the will of the one who is so holy, to not flippantly take his name, but to ask according to his name. Lord, I pray for your grace to be poured out on them. And I commit them to you in the name of Jesus. Amen.